the book of Psalms and see how far we can get along today. I guess that isn't the goal. The goal is to understand God and God's Word and, and our life in terms of God better rather than trying to hasten along. It's just that I sometimes think, well, I don't want to get too bogged down here in 150 chapters and take three years to do this. Uh, there are other things that need to be addressed, as I did uh, last time I spoke, kind of broke into it and, and did not go further in this series, but we'll pick it up again today in, in Psalm 59. Uh, you might recall verses 10 and 11 of 58, just as a, a bit of a primer going into this, uh, but he sums up what he had been saying by saying, The righteous shall rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He shall wash his feet in the blood of the wicked. And I think I commented then there in Malachi 4 that it says that the wicked will be ashes under the feet of the righteous. Same thought expressed in a little different analogy. But there is going to come a time when we're going to see all of these things that God is talking about actually come to pass. And then we will see and rejoice when we see the vengeance that God is going to wreak on the wicked. Uh, because as David and others sometimes say, sometimes you look at the wicked and think, well, they're prospering, they're doing this, they're doing that, uh, they're not going through what I'm going through. And yet, you have to consider not the moment, but where it is all leading and how it will come out in the end. So the end of the thing is what really counts. A lot of people won't watch a sports activity or game until the last quarter or the last half or whatever they pick because the first part of it is preparation and, and uh, not quite the same tempo or speed or intensity that the last part of the game is. And that's what they want to see is how does it come out? What happens at the end? What happens at the very beginning sometimes is totally different than the final outcome. And man's experience on this earth, so far, is going to be totally different than the final outcome. So that's what he's saying here. So that a man shall say, truly, there is a reward for the righteous. It's going to turn out that all these things God has prophesied, that he has said, are going to happen. Truly, He is a God that judges in the earth. So His will will be made known. His will will come to pass. The wicked will not be, and the righteous will survive and live forever. So, that's a good thought to get into Psalm 59, because <clears throat> I think that we'll see today a lot of hope. And that's part of the big three. Love, or faith, hope, and love, and the greatest, he says, is love. But faith and love really cannot be, uh, well, what's the word I'm looking for? They can't reach their fullness or be maximized without hope. Because if you don't have hope, it's hard to move forward in faith and love. So hope is a very big part of the big three. Not the most important part, but the thing that keeps you moving toward accomplishing the other two. So we'll see that theme through these next few chapters. <clears throat> Psalm 59. Deliver me from my enemies, O my God. So he said in the conclusion of the previous chapter that this is going to turn out right in the long run. However, back at the ranch... <laughs> I still have trouble, he says. The, the enemies are still there. The problems are still there. So it projects forward to a time of deliverance, but you still have to deal with the present, which is not yet there. We are in the same boat today. We look forward to the things and the culmination of all the words of God from Genesis through Revelation and we're right on the verge, right on the edge of all these things coming to pass. And they're going to happen very, very quickly when they really start in earnest. But meanwhile, life is difficult and we still have troubles and adversaries and difficulties all around us. 
So the plea then is, deliver me from my enemies, O my God. Defend me from them that rise up against me. And that could be Satan and the demons. That could be human beings. That could be the whole society and culture around us. Because all those things are enemies to the way of God. They are in contradiction to it in every way. <clears throat> for lo, they lie in wait for my soul. Now, Satan certainly wants to grab our soul and run off with it. And he is the one who sets the ways in the culture of the world through influencing people. So everything we see around us lies in wait to draw us away from God. The mighty are gathered against me, not for my transgression, nor for my sin, O Eternal. They run and prepare themselves without my fault. It isn't that I brought all this on myself. They're just there trying to pull me down and destroy me anyway. You know, the fact that people hate God's truth is not because of your sin or mine. They have an automatically adversarial approach to God and to anything that has to do with the truth of God. Now, our sins can affect things, but it isn't our fault that Satan and the demons are against us. It's God's Word that we keep that causes Satan angst. Awake to help me, and behold. And there is a cry in Isaiah 49 to 52 to awake. Oh God, not just people, but God. Not that he's asleep, but it appears that he is in terms of the deliverance that we've seen. And in fact, that is used in the world quite a bit. Well, God's gone away and gone to sleep. He doesn't seem to be involved in the ways of the world and what's going on. And with the wickedness that is all around us, yeah, it has that appearance. But it does say in places for him to wake to what's going on and for Christ to rise to get up and do his work there in Zechariah, into Zechariah 2, I think that one is. So they're all through the Bible for God to turn his head not away from us, but to turn it to us. And that is the analogy that he has used in several places in the prophecies. I've turned my face from you. I can't stand the circumstance. Both our sin and the sin of the world around us. So, just by accepting God's Word, apart from what we do with it, we automatically have enemies. Because it is in our desire to seek God. Uh, just as Christ, when he was seen by the Samaritans, it said his face looked as if he was going to Jerusalem. In other words, just the fact that he was a Jew, and therefore probably would go to Jerusalem, that's the implication, uh, they hated him. Not anything he had done, not anything he would said, but because he looked like a Jew. And that's all it takes. You therefore... O eternal God of hosts, the God of Israel, awake to visit all the heathen. Uses the same word there that I just quoted from Isaiah. Be not merciful to any wicked transgressors. Stop and think about that. David is calling on God not to be merciful to the wicked, but to be merciful to those who would serve him. And God has said... He will not be merciful to the wicked, at least not in the beginning. After their death in this end time, uh, they'll come up in the great white throne judgment. Then he will show mercy once they show an attitude of remorse, of repentance, of changing their ways, of avowing to worship God. Then the mercy will come. They return at evening. They make a noise or bark like a dog and go round about the city barking. So the heathen, he says, are all around us. Have you ever heard a barking dog in the night? Just, you can't sleep, it irritates you greatly, and then your neighbor begins to irritate you too, because it's their dog. Uh, I've lived all across the country and, and heard neighbor's dogs barking, and 
it gets very irritating. But we're trying to do what's right, and yet we have the world barking around us. Behold, they belch out with their mouth. Swords are in their lips. For who, say they, does hear? God isn't listening. God's dead. God's not alive. God doesn't care. He's old and feeble. Whatever their attitude is, I'll do what I want to do. And that's the whole approach of our culture in this country and around the world as well. I want to do what I want to do, stay out of my way, and I'll tell you the way it is. No one's going to tell me what to do. That's really what's encapsulated in verse 7. But you, O Eternal, shall laugh at them. You shall have all the heathen in derision. That's quoted uh, in the prophecies as well. You cannot, when you go through here and compare many of the things that are said in the Psalms to Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the minor prophets, and Daniel, and so on, and even Matthew 24 and Luke 21 and other prophetic sections of the New Testament, you, you have to comprehend at some point that David was indeed a major prophet. Uh, all the things he wrote here and were echoed later by the other prophets. Many of them quotes, both of the other prophets and in the New Testament. Verse 9, because of his strength will I wait upon you, for God is my defense. God is the one who will protect us, provide for us, and take care of us. And he promises that in many places, that those who will be righteous and will obey him will be protected. Rich people right now are digging bunkers all over the world. Some of them are buying small submarines to try to get away from what they know is about to hit. And doesn't God say, whether you go to the depths of the ocean or the heights of the mountains, you cannot escape my wrath. So they're not really considering that. They're looking at mankind and thinking, here is a way of escape. But it won't work. Because God will know exactly where they are and what the circumstances are. The only way to be protected is come under the protection of Almighty God, who is going to cause all of this pain and suffering to come on the world through Satan and his demons and man. He will use them as his emissaries, as his servants, to bring the punishment that needs to, be, that needs to come. Verse 10, the God of my mercy shall protect me. God shall let me see my desire upon my enemies. So he's talking about the ultimate outcome here. And this is looking forward to today, written for us today. Slay them not, lest my people forget. Scatter them by your power. So in one thought, he's saying, don't slay them, lest we have no opposition and we forget you. That's echoed in the New Testament, that unless we have trials, troubles, tribulations, difficulties, we forget God. If everything is rosy, going peachy keen, everything fine, got plenty of money, got good health, got everything I could want or need, family about me, whatever, all of those things will cause us to forget God. It's when things do not go so well that we remember, oh, I need to get close to God. Though we prevent God's blessings. We'll see that a little later if we get that far. So, don't get rid of all trouble, lest we forget. Scatter them by your power and bring them down, O Eternal, our shield. And isn't that exactly the method God used with the church to begin to get our attention was to scatter us. He didn't just kill everybody, but he certainly scattered us and made worshiping him and having church and being religious far more difficult by destroying the organization around us and forcing us to begin to seek God ourselves. For the sin of their mouth and the words of their lips, let them even be taken in their pride, and for cursing and lying which they speak. So all of these things that the world is doing and saying around 
are going to come back on their heads. Consume them in wrath. Consume them that they may not be. And let them know that God rules in Jacob under the ends of the earth. Now this has only occurred once in the history of mankind. And that was the time of the Noatian deluge. When all but eight were killed. Now in this particular case, there has to be a prophecy for the end time. Because since these words were written up until today, this has never happened. That God's vengeance be taken, that the wicked be taken down, and it be known to the ends of the earth. And do not the end time prophecies say that except he would cut the time short, no flesh would be saved alive. None, not even eight. So he is going to cut it short. Well, this has to be a far-reaching prophecy here beyond just David and his kingdom because it is a worldwide encompassing thing if you take the words for what they actually say and don't spiritualize it away. He is going to know, or the world is going to know, that God rules in Jacob to the ends of the earth. As it says in Isaiah, from the east to the west, they will all know And as uh, Ezekiel puts it many times, they shall know that I am the Lord. Dozens of times he says that. So it's really only a repeat of what's being said here. And at evening, let them return and let them bark like dogs and go round about the city. Let them wander up and down for food or meat. And my King James isn't. Very good there. It says in grudge if they be not satisfied. But the margin says if they be not satisfied, then they will stay and bark all night. Because they're not getting what they want. Let them, uh, let's see, verse 16. But I, in contrast to the wicked, I will sing of your power. Yes, I will sing aloud of your mercy in the morning. For you have been my defense and refuge in the day of my trouble. Well, he was to David, and we have to realize that the Bible is written on many, many different levels. Fulfillments can come over and over and over again, and then there is the final great climactic fulfillment at the end of the age. And perhaps even beyond that, at the end of the millennium, there will be another huge uprising, and the wicked will again for the last time be destroyed. So, if you want to get to the very end of the last fulfillment of this, you've got to go to the end of the thousand years. But as far as from Noah until today, what he's talking about is right in front of us. Even though David may have had a small amount of it, and even though Christ personally suffered these things as well. So, this was a prophecy. He he made that very clear himself, that these prophecies were fulfilled in him. But it wasn't the last fulfillment. And he is in us, is he not? Dwelling in us. And what happens to us, his bride-to-be, happens to him. So these prophecies that were fulfilled in him on one level are fulfilled in him and in us on an entirely different level at the end. So you can't always say, well, you know, I know what this is talking about. Because it may have many fulfillments. It may have many levels. It may be a many-faceted gem. Uh, gem. Verse, uh, chapter 60. O God, you have cast us off. Now, Israel was cast off. In some respects, David was and punished. And yet, are we not facing that today? Has the church not been cast off, spit out in the street as vomit because of our Laodicean attitudes and our lack of diligence in serving Him. We've been scattered too. So here's a prophecy being fulfilled in us before our very eyes. You have been displeased. Oh, turn yourself to us again. That is our plea, is it not? Turn your face to us. Arise, O Lord. Awake, O Eternal. We say these things from the other prophecies. Well, here they are in the Psalms. You have made the earth to tremble. You have broken it. Heal the breaches thereof, for it shakes. 
Isaiah 24 talks about the earth will be shaking and quaking and only a few men left. Well, that hasn't happened since Isaiah was written. Hasn't been happened since this psalm was written. Doesn't Isaiah 58 talk about God's people who will fast and pray in the right attitude, being the ones who heal the breaches between God and man? It's all through the prophecies, what we're reading here. You have showed your people hard things. Has he or has he not? Haven't we been going through some pretty hard things since 1986 and even before? You have made us to drink the wine of astonishment, of grief, of fear, of destitution, of frustration. Astonished is perhaps a good word in a way. We look at what was with Worldwide Church of God, and it is astonishing what has occurred since. And we've eaten the bread of astonishment for sure. Or wine here it says. You have given a banner to them that fear you. Or a banner, as the Hebrew implies, to fly before them. To hold up to them that fear you. That it may be displayed because of the truth. Think about this. Now if you go to Zechariah 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6 and compare some of uh, the scriptures in Isaiah and places where a, a guide, a banner, a flag will be put forth for others to see and that they will see and then God will draw them to bring a remnant together here at the end. It's the whole message of Haggai and Zechariah to finish his work and be an example to the world. So that too is foreseen here. That your beloved may be delivered, save with your right hand and hear me. God has spoken in His holiness. I will rejoice. I will divide Shechem and meet out the valley of Succoth. Uh, those were in Ephraim and Manasseh and around Jerusalem in the true land of Canaan. Uh, Gilead is mine. That was in Gad. Manasseh is mine. Ephraim is the strength of my head. The church, the head of mankind today, has been in the land that I now believe is Ephraim, the United States, not in Britain, but here. And certainly in this end time, the United States is the most prominent nation in Jacob and in the world, for that matter. That is quickly disappearing, but it's still there. So Ephraim is the head. He says in Jeremiah 31 that he has made Ephraim the firstborn. That wasn't the order of birth. Reuben was. But he did not give... Manasseh, a double blessing, or as great a blessing as he gave Ephraim by any means. Ephraim got the double portion. And we have, have the most productive land on the face of the earth. Ephraim is the strength of my head. Judah is my lawgiver. And Christ certainly brought the law and is, is the law. He and his father, uh, they embody the law. They define the law. Moab is my wasp, wasp, wash pot. Over Edom will I cast out my shoe. And the end time prophecies of uh, Jacob's sons and of or Jacob and Esau and specifically where the, the, in the end time Jacob would prevail, but then Esau would prevail over them right at the end. And then he just says he will destroy Edom, Esau, uh, in the end time, after they laugh at the calamity of Jacob. That's in the book of Obadiah, and among other places. But Ammon and Moab were the incestuous children of Lot, who was the brother of or Brother or cousin, I guess cousin, wasn't it, of Abraham. And they have been enemies as well, and will be. I will cast out my shoe. Philistia, the Philistines uh, of Ham, triumph you because of me. So these will be some of the enemies of Israel, but God will triumph over them. Who will bring me into the strong city? Who will lead me into Edom to oversee 
because Edom has has been and will take the lead role here at the end and triumph over us. And the international bankers who are essentially of Edomite uh, extraction in Europe and in the United States are now beginning to prevail over us. They're destroying our economy. They're destroying and debasing our currency and doing it on purpose with a vengeance and very rapidly. And they will oversee the downfall of this nation. And that isn't even any longer prophecy. Just the end game of it is, but we see it happening before our very eyes on a daily basis now. But who can deliver us from this destruction that is about to be worked upon us? Only God. And he is going to start out with a very small remnant who will serve him and use them to then establish a light for the world. Will not you, O God, which had cast us off? So, yes, he cast the church off, the spiritual Jews, and he is going to turn his face back to them. And that right early, he says, when you turn to me, and you, O God, which did not go out with our armies, you, you, you've just let this happen, but you're going to turn it around. Give us help from trouble, for vain is the help of man. It doesn't matter where you go, man cannot save you. And you've got all these preppers out there who are preparing cabins in the woods and holes under the ground and food and ammunition and so on and so forth to protect themselves from what's coming. It won't work. The only place of safety will be that refuge which God provides for those faithful to Him. That's the only place that can, you can be guaranteed peace and safety when all this hits. Through God we shall do valiantly, for He it is that shall tread down our enemies. We don't have to fight. God will take care of the enemies. He even says when the two witnesses who are witnessing God's way about God's people in a place of safety and pointing the world to them as the ones that God is protecting because of their obedience to Him, when they try to kill those who would spread that message to the world, God will cause fire to come out of their mouths and devour and destroy their enemies. That's how God is going to do the thing. They're not going to be armed with guns. God will cause the miracle. They won't do it themselves. And in fact, of themselves, they eventually are killed in the streets of Jerusalem right at the end of the whole thing when God removes that power. God protected Christ when He was on this earth up until a certain point, and then He left Him, forsook Him, and allowed them to kill Him. Done on purpose and for a reason, but then He was resurrected three days later. So, God took care of the problem, our problem, and our sins that way, and then resurrected Him. So, God has all the answers. He knows exactly what He's doing. And He will tread down our enemies in the end and put a wall of fire and a covert over and around us. He says He will. Chapter 61, Hear my cry, O God, attend to my prayer. Now, that's a plea for God to listen. Now, when he's, as he said here, turned his face from us, then what do we do? We cry out, please hear our prayer. Please hear our prayer. And we give him no rest, as he says in Isaiah, until he turns it around. Until he wakes up or rises to do his work, his fabulous work. From the end of the earth will I cry to you when my heart is overwhelmed. Sometimes we can be overwhelmed, discouraged, frustrated, negative, whatever. What do you do then? You cry out to God. From the ends of the earth, wherever you are, whatever your circumstance, you cry out to God. There is the only answer we will ever have. We can get a little encouragement, a little strengthening, perhaps, from one to another, iron sharpening iron and encouraging and strengthening one another, encouraging, urging one another onward and not to quit and give up or whatever. But really, 
the strength, the power comes from the Spirit of God. It's the only place that it can come from. When my heart is overwhelmed, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. I think that would be a direct prophecy of Christ right there, unmistakably. He is the foundation stone of the church, chief cornerstone, Ephesians 2. For you've been a shelter for me and a strong tower from the enemy. I will abide in your tabernacle forever. I will trust in the covert of your wings. Think about that. Now, he depicts himself there in Matthew as being like a mother hen who clucks to the chicks to come under her wings for protection. And I think I've come to grasp sometimes the, the different leaves of a book, if you will, of how these prophecies come together. That God has, is so organized, so complete, so understanding, that He can make a statement like this one, and it will have various ramifications, various fulfillments. And you can say, well, this was fulfilled, or this happened, or that will be. No, it may have happened several times already, and it may come to pass several times again. That is how powerful, how insightful God is. But when it says here, a covert under your wings, we can understand it as personal protection about us, like the mother hen or an eagle, he says in some places. But I have seen this written in geology, not just in terms of actual physical protection from death and hurt, but he has expressed this in the place I have come pretty much to believe is the original and true Jerusalem. It's expressed right there in the geology with the formation of the rocks. A rough geological wingspan on the west side of that place. And it is a symbol of his protection that he has over his people and over Jerusalem. I've seen it written in stone and petroglyphs of his protection over his people. So, in geology and in markings of Israelites on the rocks, and here in his word, the written word, and I have seen his protection and his help on individuals here and there throughout my life. And I have felt that protection at times in my life in a very true and real way in the many, many times that this idiot has tried to kill himself, uh, not overtly, but in various stupid ways. And you probably can recount some of those things in your life as well, where without God's help and protection, you were a dead duck, if you're a duck. But God is there, and there are many, many different levels in which these scriptures are fulfilled. Verse 5, for you, O God, have heard my vows, you've heard my pleas, you've heard the promises I've made of what I intend to do for you and to you, with you. You have given me the heritage of those that fear your name. Isn't it nice to have Enoch and Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, John, Peter, James, Paul, Jude, that we have the same heritage to become the bride of the Son of God. What an honor. What an opportunity. Uh, let's see, where was I here now? I lost my place. Uh, verse 6 now. You will prolong the king's life and his years as many generations. Now, David's life was not particularly prolonged. Now, I think it was only by God's intervention that he lived to the ripe old age of 70, the promised three score and ten generally, because he had many enemies and he was a man who did a great deal of fighting and warring. And by all rights, he should have been dead long before <coughs> through conspiracy and assassination, if not outright in war. Or God striking him dead for his sin, for that matter. But he says his years will be 
prolonged many generations. So he realized that there was a life after, that he would be in the kingdom of God. Uh, He lived 70 years, and that was it on this earth. Not many generations. But that stretches out ahead of him, and he knew that. He shall abide before God forever. Underlines that statement. He knows he will live forever in the kingdom of God. He's dead now, doesn't know a thing. But he knew it when he was still alive and wrote this. Oh, prepare mercy and truth, which may preserve him. The mercy of God and his truth, which sets us free, is all we have to give us that eternal life, which is being spoken of here. Through the life and death and resurrection of his son and the truth that he brought, thy word is truth, we have opportunity to the same legacy that David has. Through his mercy, because we have all sinned and come short of the glory of God, through the mercy of the blood of Christ and the Father, we can be forgiven and inherit eternal life. So will I sing praise to your name forever, that I may daily perform my vows. So daily we go about fulfilling the baptismal vow that we made to follow and serve God, and that does preserve our future, because we live up to the vows that we have made. There's a lot of pure old gospel and salvation here, isn't there? There's prophecy, there's Christian living, all through the Psalms. And I think it's clearer now, once we understand what's going on in the church and what's been happening these last years, uh, much clearer now to read this and understand what is being discussed. Chapter 62. Truly my soul waits upon God. From Him comes my salvation. Remember Habakkuk's frustrations? When, oh when, oh Lord, is this all going to come to pass? I want it to happen. Uh, I'm frustrated with the way things are here and now. And then he finally said, okay, I've come to the right conclusion. I'll sit on my watch and wait patiently for God. You and I go through those gyrations with ourselves, don't we? The frustrations we might have, the difficulties we face, the seeming hopelessness hopelessness, or perhaps even never-ending saga that goes on and on, and when will these things happen? Well, Habakkuk felt those same things. And it is something that we have to go through that brings us to the point we have to be spiritually. We have to go through this. God prophesied it ahead of time and said, this is what it's going to take. So, when we reason through it, and those times when we're having a pity party or a frustrating situation or a bad hair day or whatever we're going through, we have to sort through all this, just like Habakkuk said, and come to the right conclusion. I know you're going to take care of it in your time, in your way, and it's my job to be patient. That's one of the fruits of God's Spirit until it happens. And he is doing this on purpose so that we might learn. He only is my rock, verse 2, and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be greatly moved. Doesn't Paul write in Hebrews about those who will not be moved or things that cannot be moved? He's really quoting the Psalms. That which cannot be moved. Solid, stable, I will not be depressed, I will not be discouraged, I will not quit, I will not give up, I will not be removed, even though the whole earth be moved, because my trust is in God. How long will you imagine mischief against a man? You shall be slain, all of you, as a bowing, a bowing wall shall you be, and as a tottering fence." In fact, Isaiah 29 talks about how it will lean outward like a wall and then collapse. And we see the economy, the whole world, culture, and every part of it leaning, leaning, leaning. And one of these days is just going to collapse. So Isaiah may have quoted here from the Psalms as well. It is incredible the amount of insight 
without the rest of Scripture, the rest of the Old Testament and the New Testament, that David and some of these writers back here had when they couldn't read the whole Bible like we can. They couldn't put the whole story together from the whole Word of God. They had to, it had to come through inspiration. It had to come through some kind of teaching that perhaps was passed down from Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and what David learned from what Moses and others had written even before him. But this is New Testament language. My rock and my salvation. What do we sing? We sing this one. God is my rock, my salvation, my hope. It's right there in the hymn book. I shall not be greatly moved. How long will you... It says greatly moved. I think that's interesting. We go back and forth a little bit. We waver here and there a little. But not greatly moved. We can be frustrated. We can be self-pitying or whatever from time to time. But we're not going to be moved off the rock, off the foundation that we have been given. How long will you imagine mischief against a man? Oh, let's see, I read that. Verse 4, they only consult (coughs) to cast him down from his excellency. They delight in lies, they bless with their mouth, but they curse inwardly. So people are two-faced, they're hypocritical, they'll speak nice things to your face and stab you in the back. Think about that. It's a truism. It's the way mankind operates. It's the way Satan operates. Does Satan accuse you to your face very often? No. How does he accuse you? He goes behind your back to God. Accuses you before God. Verse 5, my soul, wait you only upon God, for my expectation is from Him. Wait patiently. That's where our hope, our expectation, that's another word for hope, is from. He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be moved. So he repeats it. I am not going to be moved by anything around me. I will be faithful to God. Because that's where our hope lies. In God is my salvation and my glory. The rock of my strength and my refuge is in God. Again, he mentions the wings of the eagle up there, chapter before. Trust in Him at all times. That's what is the essence of faith. Trust God. He will see it through. He will take care of it in His time and in His way. We don't need to get impatient and frustrated. We do occasionally and are moved a little. But we don't need to. We need to go to Him and cry out. Trust in Him at all times, you people. Pour out your heart before Him. God is a refuge for us. Contemplate that. Think about that. Pour out your heart to God. You can pour it out to mankind and it might do some good sometimes. But the real help comes from God. Surely men of low degree are vanity, and men of high degree are a lie. To be laid in the balance, they are altogether lighter than vanity. Vanity isn't worth a thing. And if you put all the rich men, the poor men, the good men, the bad men on the scale, they weigh less than vanity. It's all something we build up in our own minds which carries no weight. This life carries no weight. One thing happens to us all. We die, and the worms go in, and the worms go out. And we go dust to dust. That's what happens to all flesh. So, what's that worth? What does that weigh on the balance? Nothing. Everything you can do on this earth goes away when you die, unless you have treasure in heaven, unless you have your name in the book of life. If it's there, then there's something that has some weight. There's something that carries value. But everything we can do on this earth means nothing unless there's treasure in heaven.
you don't really know much about your great-great-grandmother or grandfather, do you? What do you know about them? Probably nothing. Just a name on a family tree if you have one. I vaguely remember my great-grandmother on one side. Never met the other one. And some of the stories she told about coming west in wagons and Pancho Villa and the Indians and various things. I remember those stories and I remember her sitting by the fireplace telling them to me when I was a little boy. And then Grandma Miller died. She told me about Happy Valley, Arizona, where she had lived. And I wondered, she, she never could pinpoint where it was. And then one day I was coming north out of Phoenix and there was Happy Valley right there. Got a sign by the freeway. Probably the same Happy Valley. I don't know. Not too many Happy Valleys in Arizona, are there? But I barely remember my great-grandmother. I remember my grandmothers. I remember my mother, even. But we don't remember very far back, do we? It just, it just goes away. Nothing there. God remembers them all, all the way back. He has them recorded. He'll resurrect them. Though, all our life, everything we can do is just lighter than air. means nothing on the scale of time unless we have something that is eternal. Trust not in oppression and become not vain in robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart upon them. Don't go out and steal it. You'll lose it anyway. But happenstance, you do well, you make money, or God blesses you with Increase like he did some of the patriarchs? Don't set your heart on it. There's the problem. It says it's like, or Christ said, it's like a camel going through the eye of a needle for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. A lot of people want to be wealthy, but then do you want to deal with what that causes? Do you want to be like a camel going through the eye of a needle? To get into the kingdom of God? I thought it was quite difficult already. And riches or wealth just make it harder and worse and bring more trial, trouble, tribulation and perhaps even punishment on us if we have everything going well. So, money can be a root of all evil because it can keep us from God. So, Even if you do become wealthy, don't put your heart in it. God has spoken once. Twice have I heard this, that power belongs to God. He says, God's spoken it, and I heard it again, and we're reading it again. It's been read many times since this was written. Some people, somewhere, will actually believe it. And act upon it. That God has all power in the universe. Not Satan, not man, not governments, but God. And he is going to demonstrate that power quite soon. Also to you, O Eternal, belongs mercy. For you render to every man according to his work. Where was Paul quoting when he wrote Galatians and Ephesians? And Romans, and some of those scriptures in the New Testament. I will show you my faith by my works. And yet, the Protestant world thinks works are done away. No, they're talked about right here. And that our judgment and our salvation, our reward, will be based upon our works. Faith without works is dead. Useless. It isn't faith at all. Chapter 63. O God, you are my God. Early will I seek you. Doesn't he prophesy? I think it's in Jeremiah that you will seek me early. Might be Isaiah, I forget now. That you will seek me early. Actually, it's said in several different ways, several places. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you in a dry and thirsty land where no water is. Now, what did Christ say in the Sermon on the Mount? Essentially that same thing. To seek him after him like silver and gold. To hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now, we are in this end time, both 
figuratively and actually now in a dry and desert land. And in fact, that is one of the definitions of Zion, as a dry and thirsty land, a place of refuge. The Word of God is not around very much. Hard to find. In fact, it says they'll go from east to west there in uh, Amos, seeking it and not find. From coast to coast, from sea to sea. And the only place that it leaves out in that search is the southwest. Because that's where God began the work in the end time church with Herbert Armstrong in power. Uh, he started up in Oregon, but he didn't stay long and didn't grow there. It was in the southwest that it really was given birth and grew. So that's where it has come from here at the end time with the former temple. And I firmly believe that's where it will come from in the latter temple. Same place. Otherwise, Amos did not know what he was talking about. And I think he did. <clears throat> Verse 2, To see your power and your glory, so as I have seen you in the sanctuary. Where is the sanctuary? You'll see as we go on through the Psalms that Zion is named. Uh, Jerusalem is named. The places that God is going to take care of His people. He's already said He would protect Jerusalem. We've already addressed that today. Um, verse 3, Because your loving kindness is better than life, my lips shall praise you. This life doesn't mean much. Having God's kindness and mercy on us is more important than our physical life on this earth. We value our flesh and bones pretty highly, don't we? And yet God says it's nothing compared to what shall be. Thus, or because of this, will I bless you while I live. I will lift up my hands in your name. Isn't it written again that a live dog is better than a dead lion? That you can't praise God in the grave? Does you no good? So while we live, we need to be serving and praising God. I will lift up my hands in your name. My soul shall be satisfied as with marrow and fatness, and my mouth shall praise you with joyful lips. So it doesn't matter what's going on around us and what troubles we might have. The attitude of mind and on our tongue should be worship, praise to God. Because of all the things he has done for us, not the things that he has not yet done for us, but we can also joy and give Him praise for what He has promised that He has not yet done. Because His Word is sure. And He has sworn on His own life that He will do these things for us, His people. So bless Him and thank Him for what He shall do. Doesn't He speak of those things that are not as if they already are? And if we are living in faith, should we not be able to project those things that He promises to us as if they had already happened? I believe that He is going to call a remnant out. I do believe He is going to work through them with the two witnesses to be a witness to the world. Because that's what He tells us will happen about the end-time church. I have someone who calls me up periodically, just so firmly entrenched in the idea that Herbert Armstrong was the end-time Elijah. Well, I know of a lot of things he never restored that we're finding in the Scriptures. Haven't happened yet. And not only that, the Scripture says that when the gospel will be preached around the world, then shall the end come. That's just pure Scripture. Well, Herbert Armstrong did all his preaching... And when he finished his preaching, he stopped, and he died, and it's been nearly 26 years, or over 25 now, and the end has not yet come. He did not preach the gospel around the world as a witness to the end. Did not do it. Now, he may have been a leaf of fulfillment of the Elijah to come. He certainly restored a lot, but he was not the final fulfillment. 
He was the former temple. The latter temple will be under the two witnesses. And when they finish preaching the gospel around the world, the end will come three days after their death. That's the way the scripture explains it. So just because somebody 30, 40 years ago thought Herbert Armstrong was the final Elijah to come, did not make it so. And what has occurred since then proves that it wasn't so. But you have how many organizations today that still cling to that? And are trying to finish Herbert Armstrong's work for him because he didn't finish his job. He said he completed his job. But this guy that calls me don't, does not understand what Herbert Armstrong's job was. His job was to call many. And out of those many who have since been scattered, a few are being called. I mean chosen. To finish the work and to preach the gospel around the world as a witness, the two witness as, get it? And then the end shall come. I know he'll hear this sermon eventually. But it's not about him. It's about a lot of people who have assumed something based on something somebody believed and it didn't happen. Didn't we also believe that the tribulation would start in 72 and that Christ would return in 75? Anybody still believe that? Hasn't the course of events shown that was not the case? Well, maybe, hmm, there could be other things in that category, reckon? Don't you understand some things in the Bible better today than you did 25 years ago? Are there a lot of things you missed back then that had not been restored that you've come to understand? If He restored all things, there's nothing left to, to learn, is there? Yet I think I, I've seen, not just in our group, but I've seen a lot of people that have learned a lot of things since Herbert Armstrong died. A lot of different groups, a lot of different ministers have learned some things since then. It had not all been restored. And you and I are living proof of that. We are to always grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord. And if everything had been restored and that was it, then how are we going to grow? What are we going to learn? No, we have not learned it all even yet. There is still much to learn. Much, I'm sure, that has not been restored. Verse 12. Also to you, O Eternal, belongs mercy, for you render to every man according to his works. We, we read that. Uh, let's quickly go through 63. I'm getting up close to the time I should hush, but... Let's quickly cover this. O God, you are my God. Early will I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. That's where we were. My flesh longs in the dry land. Let's see, I went on down from there. Down to verse 6. Uh, I get carried away in some direction. I, don't, I won't go back to it. Verse 6. When I remember you on my bed and meditate on you in the night watches. Are we to meditate and think? When we wake up at night, we think about these things. Does our mind go to them? We think about God and what He's doing and how He's going to do it and where we fit in it. Because you have seen, you have been my help, therefore in the shadow of your wings will I rejoice. Again, mentioning the wings we talked about at the beginning of this sermon. My soul follows hard after you. Not da-da-da-da-da, but hard after you. I'm vigilant, I'm working at it, I'm going for it. Your right hand upholds me. So, as hard as I work at it, as much as I try to do, I still need your right hand to uphold me, to strengthen me, to give me what I need. But those that seek my soul to destroy it shall go into the lower parts of the earth. They shall fall by the sword. They shall be 
food for the foxes. But the king shall rejoice in God. Every one that swears by him shall glory. So it's looking forward to the time of the resurrection and the glory of God. Because all this death and destruction is coming to the wicked, but God's glory will remain and we will be given the glory of God. But the mouth of them that speak lies shall be stopped. And that has not yet happened in a worldwide context. The liars will be stopped. They'll be dead. And everybody else is going to quit lying because they'll realize what happens to liars. All right, let's stop there. Beginning of chapter 64. We'll see you next week. God willing.